1: plushcare.com slash weight loss. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today I'm joined in by a friend of mine all the way from the US, from Portland, Oregon, um, a, a naturopathic buddy of mine who I actually reached out to. I think it was about two years ago um, on Instagram, where I just I uh, messaged him and wanted to do some um, collaboration posts together. And, um, ever since then we've, um, yeah, we, we've bounced ideas. We've, have discussed a few things like naturopathic about naturopathic medicine and things like that. So yeah, welcome to the show, Tyler. It's a, it's an honor to have you on the show.
0: Thanks Lucas. It's great to be on here and, um, I'm just looking forward to having a great conversation with you.
1: Yeah, sweet. So do you want to give my audience a little bit of a, uh, a background about your journey into, um, studying naturopathy itself.
0: Yeah, so I would say like my journey to medicine it really you know catalyzed in my undergraduate studies. And so um, when I was at university, and at the time um, I was a student athlete, I swam in the Pac-12 as a swimmer um, here in the United States. And um, it was my sophomore year of college that I started really. Thinking about you know the food that I was feeling with my my body on a daily basis as an athlete and my ability to you know perform on a daily basis and uh, recover day in and day out. So um, I was eating what we call over here a standard American diet. It was really just a bunch of refined carbohydrates, grains, simple sugars, um, and you know a lot of industrialized vegetable oils, and um, you know not incorporating a lot of wholesome um, real nutritious food. Um, I was getting, you know, nutrients, but I was more focused about the calories rather than like the micros that I was consuming, uh, just because I was, you know, spending so much energy as an athlete. And so, um, I really made this huge transition over about a year of going from strict, you know, standard American diet to a vegetarian template to more of a strict vegan, um, dietary template and really just eliminating meat from my diet. And throughout that journey, I ended up being vegan for 18 months. I just learned a lot about myself and really was just at the time seeking uh, the Uh, answer to this question of what is the best diet for humans. And, you know, it's a highly um, debated topic, uh, especially on social media and everyone has, you know, something to say and it can get really dogmatic. Right. And so um, I know something that you, that we can both agree on. And I think most people in the field of naturopathy and integrative and holistic medicine is that there is no one diet that's right for everyone. And it is individualized medicine that takes into account our biochemical individuality that is the best diet for that one person. And so, you know, ultimately through my journey, I just, you know, I learned so much more about different nuances and how my body responded to different foods and, you know, really, you know, propelled me into, you know, this medical setting. I was already a pre-med student in undergrad. But when I graduated, you know, I had a number of opportunities that I could kind of explore. Um, I was in research and I was in uh, neuroscience research and was looking at some of these um, molecular pathways and mechanisms of certain SNPs in age-related macrogeneration. Uh, I then went on and did clinical research with type 1 diabetics and um, worked with Mayo Clinic and Stanford and um, Harvard, uh, the ChemE team, and uh, the development of an artificial pancreas system so an automated insulin delivery system for type 1 diabetics um, and that gave me a ton of exposure and it was really through the clinical aspect of research that catalyzed my decision that I actually want to go back and pursue a career in medicine yeah. but at that time I felt really discouraged by you know the options here, in the United States. A lot of our Western model when we talk about medicine is based on the diagnosis and of, of symptoms. Um, and then there is a one size fits all type of approach to how we medically treat patients. And after time, it is a prescription with a pharmaceutical drug to suppress and suppress symptoms and or manage disease. And, um, I've always been that person that probably asks a lot of questions and too many questions. And so I just knew that there was more to that and, um, you know, didn't just want to sit with this diagnosis. I knew that there had to be other factors and ask more of those questions as to why. And, um, being that I was passionate nutrition, you know, really, um, had a you know bad taste in my mouth, that Western medicine largely ignored um, diet and life, and a lot of lifestyle tools when it comes to disease, pathophysiology and, and medicine in general. So it was ultimately through that that I found naturopathic medicine. And then when I you know looked into it a little bit more, I, was, I just I remember that day saying, "Wow. I know exactly what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that, that was just like the coolest feeling. Um, and so I'm such a big believer in integrative and holistic medicine. I've healed a lot through food. That's why I started my page, functional foods on Instagram and multiple social platforms. And I really do believe that food is foundational, but unfortunately the more that I learn, the more I do realize that, you know, there's more to food. It's not the end all be all, unfortunately. And, you know, we can talk about a bunch of different aspects when it comes to determining the root cause and like, you know, food is, is one Avenue, but you know, there's so many other pillars to health and maintaining wellness. when we're talking about, you know, optimal health. So, um, that, that is my story in a nutshell. And yeah, I'm in my fourth year now, fourth year of, uh, naturopathic medical school and I'll graduate in June next year.
1: Awesome, man. Yeah, it's 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 great to sort of hear that you've got a, a similar sort of backstory to mine because, I mean, I played professional soccer as well. Um, I mean, like, you know, and I was very much into my sport and um, nutrition and I was similar to you in the sense that I was always asking questions and wanting to know more and then experimenting and then, you know, eventually found um, the naturopathy degree, which is what I'm also finishing off as well. So we are in a similar boat in that regard. Um, and I know you mentioned back, like, you know, when you were training and things like that, you were literally just focusing on getting, you know, simple sugars or just getting the number of calories in. But now that we, you know, now that you've studied naturopathy and you learn more about the body, what, what do you think is like, the critical error in just focusing on calories in a sense, like why is
0: that fundamentally flawed? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, and yeah, let's, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more. And so, you know, this is really based on kind of this law of thermodynamics, that energy, um, is not created nor destroyed, and that you know, you're whatever comes in, you know, you're going to utilize in some capacity. And so, there's this you know, when we talk about like your different macronutrients, your proteins, carbs, and fats, we assign um, a kilocalorie, kcal uh, to it, and you know, per gram, that's so many calories. And you know, calories are energy that our body utilizes in the form of metabolism, and how our body is able to break down these macronutrients and then able to use it as energy. And so that's a part of, you know, metabolism and the food that we are ingesting. And so, you know, we can talk about too, how like, you know, not all calories are created the same granted when I was an athlete, you know, I was exercise, I was working out about 25 hours a week. So, you know, I was burning a lot and utilizing a lot of energy. So my body just, it almost needed those calories just to keep up with the demand I was putting it through. Uh, granted though, like, you know, like I was mentioning that not all calories are created the same. And so you can take like, let's say, um, a piece of a hundred calories of broccoli and then a hundred calories of an Oreo. And while it provides the same calories, like when it actually is broken down, yes, it's going to be broken down into glucose. Um, it's going to be metabolized. Slightly differently, in terms of its impact on um, our blood sugar and how insulin is going to respond to that, and also how you know our microbiome is going to be responding to those nutrients and then also thinking about all of the different um, emulsifiers, thickeners, and additives and preservatives that are typically added to these shelf-stable foods that, you know, we're learning more and more about, you know, what kind of deleterious effects this could have on our um, gut microbiome, but on our health in general. And I will say that a lot of the data out there that, you know, we like to cite and talk about uh, especially nephropathy we're kind of talking about you know like wholesome food and non toxic stuff like that the data is limited and a lot of it is in animal studies and so you know we need more research on that but i mean it's it allows us to ask more questions and generate hypotheses so that we can explore those questions and so i will say that you know from my point of view, it's like I want to, you know, get back to nature and you know, wholesome foods as, as much as possible. But um, you know, for some people, they're, they they want to look for a justification as to being able to eat some of these foods because food um, is more than just nourishment. I mean, I know that's what we really focus on and nourishing your body with food, whole real food, colorful foods. Um, but there's an emotional uh, piece to food. There's also community and connection surrounding food. And I say it was probably my favorite aspect of food is the communion that comes with, you know, uh, you know, sharing a meal with somebody with similar values and, and nourishing people and showing people that you can eat, you know, whole foods that, you know, are both satiating, but nourishing and also taste good. So, you know, just to get back to your question, it just... You know, it, there's it's going to be broken down differently, and so I don't know how much you want to unpack this, but you know, there's a lot of people that meticulously will track their calories, and you know, it's this theory um, or this notion basically that you know, in order to lose weight, you have to be in a caloric deficit. And while I do agree agree that in some instance, you do need to be in a deficit to lose weight. There is also more to health than just the, you know, the weight that you carry and the number on the scale, right? Yeah. Because, you know, I would define health and, and I would love to get your impact or your definition of health too, but health is not the absence of disease, but really a state of vibrant energy and vitality. And we always are talking about vitality and how you can stimulate that, that vitality and in natural healing process with inside the body. And, you know, when you get older, we lose that vital force, so we're not able to heal as quickly. Um, compared to someone who's younger and can just, you know, bounce back real quick. And so, you know, health is so much more than just that weight, but your weight can be also, um, an indicator of, you know, your metabolic health and your metabolic status. Um, even though, um, it's not always the full, full story. Mm.
1: I love that, man. Yeah. Um, just speaking of like you mentioned vitality, you know, from a naturopathic point of view, that's something that I'm sure you've come across quite a lot when we're taking like you know, case studies and you know, understanding the clients a little bit better. And when it comes to actually prescribing herbs, how it's really important for us as naturopaths to consider the patient's overall vitality, because then ultimately that's going to you know affect the dosage, um, the strength of the herbs that we use. Um, so I want to sort of touch on a little bit about some like herbal therapies which you've had experience working with or that you see, um, you know, real benefit using. So like, let's sort of, let's sort of delve into a little bit more on blood sugar. So I know you're doing a lot of, um, I saw you had the CGM, uh, device you were using that for a period. How long did you have that on for?
0: Um, I did a two month period just to get a better idea of how we're responding to foods. So for those that are not familiar what a CGM is, it's a continuous glucose monitor. So it's just tracking your blood sugar uh, continuously 24 seven. And um, the way that I had it, it was not a, a Dexcom, which is really popular here in the United States. I don't know what's used in Australia, but uh, it was an Abbott Freestyle Libre. So basically, the sensor is just subcutaneous, and you can just wave your phone. It's an app that senses it, and you can get a blood sugar reading. Um, so it's nice because it will show you how lack of sleep, how stress, how exercise, and the foods you're eating is impacting your blood sugar because we know that, you know, one of those impediments to health uh, is, you know, blood sugar dysregulation and diabetes being so prevalent here in the United States. And I would even say globally. Um, and so, um, I know, uh, I don't know if this is worldwide, but here in the United States, at least, um, 12% of the U S population is coined metabolically healthy. So, you know, not being diabetic or overweight or classified as obese, having hypertension, uh, and dyslipidemia. Um, and that is, very concerning that only 12% of people are considered healthy. So yeah, how can people help to improve their overall blood sugar quality and what is going to cause it to rise? We talked about how exercise and sleep, Uh, deprivation and stress can all impact that. But diet, diet is huge, right? Um, So really focusing on whole, unadulterated real foods and thinking about um, getting in some quality lean protein and some quality fats. Um, I think about fiber. Um, Fiber is this undigestible carbohydrate that we can't break down, but the bacteria that reside in our colon can. Um, And it uh, produces these very beneficial compounds called short-chain fatty acids uh, that have a number of roles from immune health to metabolic health, Uh, to cultivating this, you know, um, "Quote unquote inner garden," um, and so you know, herbs can also be very uh, beneficial once you've you know just to help with blood sugar control if diet isn't enough. There are people that are more prone to um, you know metabolic syndrome, and they may have family history of diabetes. And you also have to consider environmental factors and plasticizers and like you know phthalates and PCBs that can also lead to more of this insulin resistance picture. Mm. So um, one of my favorite ones is ginseng. Uh, dynam- I, mean, yeah, I always butcher it in terms of talking about it but it basically blunts the, uh, Gymnema. 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 yes you know what I'm talking yeah. about <laughs> um, it blunts the sugar receptors in terms of your taste buds on your tongue so if you are more prone to um, you know eating more sweet foods and I was one of those people like seven years ago I had the hugest sweet tooth, and I just ate like dessert was like a main entree for me, basically. Um, And so, sugar was one of the hardest things for me to cut. And also, thinking about like naturopathy and getting to underlying root cause—if you do have a lot of sugar cravings, why? Why, why do you have those cravings that can actually be telling you something? Your physiology, physiologically, there's reasons why you crave that. Um, but I think for people, when we talk about diabetes and blood sugar dysregulation, we're also thinking about people that are eating a lot of processed, refined carbohydrates, whether these are grains and flours or the refined, simple sugars. So that's why um, I brought up uh, Jimmy, Lucas, Gaimia,
1: Jim Neymar, Jim Neymar.
0: Wow. Just think, yeah. just think going to the gym, going to the gym, gym. and then Nema, gym Nema. Gym gym Nema. So it can help blunt in uh those those sweet receptors on the tongue so you don't actually taste the sweetness and you don't really have that desire to eat sweet foods. Yeah. Uh I mean, there's a lot of things to like cinnamon, which I think is just like a natural herb, and it's also one of those food as medicine things that you can incorporate into your diet. Um, You can add it to smoothies, you can add it to elixirs and beverages, you can add it to oatmeal. Um, I mean, you can just use it in baking and spices in general. I I think about some of these like um, you know Moroccan chicken recipes and stuff like that. I mean, it's just something that you can add and can help improve uh, blood sugar control and euglycemia. Um, So uh, fenugreek. Um, uh, can also be really helpful. Um, and just other kind of, um, Things that come to mind are stuff like magnesium and chromium. Um, you know, all these things are going to help with blood sugar utilization. Um, and then berberine is a, probably one of the most popular ones um, that has similar efficacy to metformin uh, in improving blood sugar utilization. So actually helping you take that glucose that you've broken down um, and moving it from the bloodstream into the cells because it does your body no good mm-hmm. to have elevated blood sugar levels in the in the bloodstream. It has to actually get into the cells where it can actually used for cellular energy. Awesome man! Um, so, what are some we, of your favorites? Oh, my! Uh, the yeah, I know I didn't list all of them. Yeah, berberine's
1: definitely up there. There's actually one that um, there's now a new metabolite of berberine called dihydroberberine that I've recently um, done a lot of research on, and that seems to have all of the benefits of berberine without the because you know how with berberine it can cause the GI upset, you know, because it's a powerful antimicrobial. Um, and it also, the benefit of using dihydroberberine is that it, you can use a lower dosage to achieve the same effect on blood sugar. Um, but yeah, between dihydroberberine, bitter melon, um, there's a few others from like Ayurveda that have some pretty good, um, studies on, um, Salacia oblongata. I've got a whole list on my computer, but, um, I, I wish I had the privilege of, you know, having a cgm device so i could literally track and and see the effects of um certain herbs on my own blood sugar because i know i remember we I, I i dm'd you to ask you about um starch you found out that starch in general caused a major spike so tell, tell us more about that
0: yeah, it was more per- specifically around sweet potato. Potato didn't seem to do it as much. Uh, so in a spike, I mean, my blood sugar would probably go up to about 150, uh, which for me at postprandial, you know, I, I, it's typically like it doesn't get above 120. Um, so... For me, you know, that was a little concerning. Do I have some type of, you know, food sensitivity to sweet potato somehow that's causing an inflammatory response and a rise in blood sugar? Um, Is it that just my body isn't as uh, carb tolerant, even though I do eat a lot of carbs? Um, That's, you know, it just. It, it couldn't deal with that sweet potato and also thinking about how it was prepared. Um, I bake my sweet potatoes, which can definitely re- raise the glycemic index of that. Um, I never did an experiment. Maybe it's something to do in the future, um, with, um, not only sweet potato, but even with, uh, just white potatoes, like boiling versus, um, baking. Um, and then also thinking about some of these resistant starches. So like actually refrigerating it and then eating it, you know, would that change, how my post blood sugar changes. So yeah, it's kind of like one of those end of one experiences. And I think, you know, it kind of comes back to, again, that individualized perspective and how you respond to it. Um, not to say too that spiking your blood sugar is necessarily bad. Mm. Um, it also depends on like, you know, are you metabolically active? Are you metabolically, you know flexible as well. And, um, you know, are you working out? Cause then you're actually utilizing that glucose. And I would say that you need a healthy blood sugar response in order to stimulate protein synthesis and to put on some pretty good muscle mass. So, um, you know, I think, you know, carbohydrates are equally as important as, uh, protein and those amino acids in terms of rebuilding, um, that structure, uh, of the body. So, Yeah, it it was just an interesting finding for me and, um, also thinking about food synergy and, you know, in context with other foods, um, you know, could this also be causing more of a spike? So like sweet potatoes with, um, really any type of meat for me, uh, fish was fine, uh, cause a more exaggerated postprandial blood sugar response. And so from Ayurveda, they will sometimes talk about food combining, um, and kind of, um, some of those guidelines and recommendations are to avoid combining starchy foods and grains with, um, animal products, especially animal meats. Um, and I actually did see that when I was doing diabetes research. And if we were giving someone like a steak and potatoes type of dinner, their blood sugar would go through the roof. Um, and those people would have a lot more, um, you know, ups, highs, and lows in terms of hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, and we'd have to treat those patients a lot more frequently. Again, these are people that with type 1 diabetes, so they already have this autoimmune driven process where their body can't properly uh, regulate uh, insulin, so they are insulin dependent, so they need exogenous insulin in order to manage their blood sugar.
1: Mm. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about your suspicion that, um, the sweet potato may have been like a food allergy or a food intolerance. Did you want to sort of explore a little bit more about, um, you know, for our listeners, they may not be familiar with what the differences are between like a food allergy versus like a food intolerance and like the different types, things like that.
0: Yeah. So when people say like, let's say dairy, for example, I feel like so many people have issues with dairy. And so people are like, oh, I can't do dairy. Like, um, And so it's like, okay, well, what about dairy can you not do? Um, so there, you can have a food intolerance, you can have a food sensitivity, and you can have a food allergy. And these are all different. Some are immune-mediated and some are not. So a, a food intolerance is not immune-mediated and really just um, means that you're body does not have the necessary machinery, these enzymes to properly break down the sugars found in that food product. So if we're talking about like milk, you don't have the enzyme lactase to break down the milk sugar lactose. And because you're not able to break it down, it can lead to um, digestive distress and diarrhea and indigestion and symptoms that are just not fun to deal with, right? On the other hand, you can have what uh, most medical professionals recognize as uh, food allergies. These are IgE-mediated, and so these are um, IgE antibodies that are part of the immune system, uh, your B cells. And so this is typically... an IgE is an immediate response. This is when we think about like people that eat peanuts and they go into anaphylaxis and right and their throat starts to close up and they break out into hives, um, and their eyes get really puffy. Um, that would be a, a known food allergy. And, um, some of those common food allergens out there are things like soy and gluten and, or wheat, which a lot of gluten comes from, um, dairy and peanuts and a lot of uh, tree nuts, um, as well as I think those are like the main ones. I'm probably forgetting some, but um, you know, so that's that's a true allergy versus a food sensitivity, which is an IgG. Typically, it's an IgG-mediated response um, as opposed to IgE. And this is typically a delayed yep. uh, 24 to 72-hour response as opposed mm-hmm. to the food allergy, which is more immediate. Uh, it can happen within you know, anywhere from 10 minutes to an hour or two. IgG is going to happen from 24 to 72 hours after consuming that food. So it makes it difficult for people that are trying to identify, exactly. are they sensitive to certain foods like you know, avocado, let's say, like You may have symptoms, but is it like, well, am I reacting to the food I just ate or something that I ate, you know, 48 hours ago? And so something that I have been seeing more recently clinically, and I haven't looked into the literature on this, and maybe you could provide some insight on this, but with food sensitivities, this is a hypersensitivity response. um, You can also get this from basically breaches and gut membrane integrity, uh, where you have higher amounts of zonulin and those tight junctions have kind of split apart and you have these undigested proteins seeping through the digestive wall and reacting with that underlying immune system. And what we kind of coin leaky guts or increased intestinal permeability. And so, uh, with this, you know, you're kind of getting these artifacts that are, you know, going from the gut lumen and they're crossing and being identified by the immune system. And so for some people, they may have seven, eight, 10 or 30 different food sensitivities and oftentimes find that it's a lot of the foods they commonly consume. So you think about like avocado, which is, you know, a a fan favorite of everybody. Or you think about like almonds and almond butter and almond flour and all the almonds that people consume. Or you think about pea and pea protein and how ubiquitous it is. Um, So you can start to see that. And so what that can really be an indication of, because I would say that it's not very. Um, those results are not very sensitive and specific in terms of you know doing an an IgG food sensitivity test. It could indicate that there's some underlying um, intestinal permeability that needs to be explored. And if you were to heal and seal that gut up and remove those offending foods for a short amount of time, maybe you know four to six weeks, that you may be able to uh, successfully reintroduce those foods. And so you know, gold standard typically when you are doing a food elimination diet um, is eliminating that food. That's, that's gold standard typically. And it's more difficult for people because I think we often in, in the functional medicine world, we want the, we want that lab to show us exactly what we're reacting to and to give us that, Confirmatory data that we need to actually be eliminating these foods because let's be honest, not everybody wants to eliminate, you know, dairy, gluten, sugar, eggs, stuff like that. And so they kind of want the data to figure out if they should be actually cutting it out. But really, that elimination diet where you're cutting out. Those main uh, offending foods um, for a period of you know four to six weeks, and then gradually reintroducing them one by one. That is typically what you would do working with a naturopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor, um, because that's going to give you the best data, and you would typically keep a food diary during that time. Yeah,
1: um, it's definitely one thing I've seen a lot of as well. Like um, in clinic itself, uh, obviously, like it's really important that we get the patient to if they're experiencing symptoms, they're still not sure what's going on. They got digestive issues, things like that. It's really important to get them to eliminate, go on an an elimination diet. And I find it funny because like, you know, the whole uh, sort of carnivore diet is, you know, is really trending at the moment. You got Paul Saladino at the, you know, pioneering that. Um, and it just really makes, doesn't it just make you wonder whether or not that diet is so beneficial for so many people purely because they're just eliminating all of their food um, sensitivities, food allergies, food intolerances, things like that. So, um,
0: yeah, no, I totally think it's like an extreme elimination diet and I almost kind of look at it as like the autoimmune paleo diet that I know a lot of people with autoimmune disease will follow, which is very restrictive and you're cutting out a lot of foods and really you're going back to this very, um, very kind of strict paleolithic template where you're just kind of like, you know, meats, fish, um, you know, you're able to do dark leafy greens and stuff like that. Maybe some more of these low FODMAP fruits and vegetables, you're eliminating, you know, nuts and seeds and nightshades, dairy, eggs, you know, all grains and stuff like that. So, you know I, but here's the thing and, and with all of that too and because I, I used to be that person who's like trying to eliminate all these things and I just got so um, com, you know obsessive about food and you know I think it's important that you listen to your body and figure out which food is compatible for you but ultimately the goal should not be to of how many food groups can I eliminate how many foods can I eliminate but how can I build back tolerance and why have we lost tolerance to being able to tolerate those foods because our GI track is built towards tolerance and so typically Typically, if you're not able to tolerate food, there's some type of immune dysregulation. You've lost immune tolerance. So that is the issue we need to address and looking at how we can increase those T regulatory cells that help to push more of that tolerance picture to food. Um, when it comes to the immune system. And so something that I think is really interesting with the carnivore diet, um, is yeah, I think it's an extreme elimination diet. And I think a lot of people that are interested in it too have a lot of gut dysbiosis. And so they're, when they eliminate these fermented foods, of course they're going to feel better because they're not getting gas and bloating. They may have better digestion, but, um, maybe they don't because if they have impaired hydrochloric acid, they don't have the sufficient enzymes, then it's going to be harder to break down, um, meat products, especially raw meat, which I know some hardcore uh, carnivores are doing um, and eating like raw offal. But um, yeah, I also think about too. I don't know if you've thought about this too. Is just kind of like meat, and especially un- undercooked meat, uh, typically contains parasites. And how um, you know one of these newer areas of research that is not FDA approved but is getting some attention is um, helmet therapy, where they're actually giving people parasites uh, to help shut down um, that TH1 mediated autoimmune response. Uh, because there's a lot of people, anecdotally, that are speaking to um, trying a carnivore diet and they're reversing or putting. Reversing their autoimmune disease, or they're putting their autoimmune disease into remission. And so, is it that they uh, potentially are, could be getting parasites from this food, wow. and it's shutting down that TH1 mediated uh, response, immune response, um, and driving more of this TH2 response? And so, for any of those TH1 mediated autoimmune conditions, um, it's helping to um, you know quiet the flames uh, in well, terms of those.
1: Symptoms. That's super interesting. I've never heard of um helminth helminth
0: therapy. Yeah. Like so it's like actually giving people parasites <laughs> as a therapeutic treatment, right? So no um, we're
1: not talking homeopathic helminths.
0: Not homeopathic. <laughs> no. Right. So um it's really interesting. So, you know, and I'm not I'm not anti-carnivore, honestly. And I do I am a person that preaches more of a, a plant forward yeah. lifestyle and a plant based um diet, even though I do not equate plant based synonymous with vegan. Um I think we should all be incorporating more plants. Um but if they're you know, I think a big commonality and an issue that a lot of people have is gut dysbiosis. Um, and so there's a overgrowth of, you know, it's not necessarily pathogenic, but you know, good bacteria in their gut and it leads to either constipation, diarrhea, um, and it could be a picture of like IBS. Um, it could be where they have, you know, gas and bloating. Um, and so something that people experience day, you know, every single day. And since our gut health is so central to everything else, um, our memory, cognition, um, alertness and attention, um, as well as our energy and, you know, our digestive function. I mean, it's so central to everything that if your gut health is off, then everything else is going to be off. And if you eat food, well, everyone has to eat food, right? So everything goes through the digestive tract. So when it's if, if we can optimize that as much as possible, that should be the goal as opposed to kind of just eliminating and running away from these foods that are problematic. Like, yes, use it as a tool while we are working on the underlying root cause, but if you can't tolerate the, like, Brussels sprouts and then you add them back in, like and you still have issues like you haven't addressed the root cause. Mm.
1: Yeah, definitely, man. Definitely. So you mentioned obviously, like, I mean, as naturopaths, our goal is to achieve, you know, sufficient nutrient status via the diet, but then also like, you know, we'll draw upon supplements when we need it. So I sort of want to delve into, you know, like where, how do you see supplements as beneficial for majority of people? And like, when do you, when do you see them as
0: like therapeutic tools? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would think I would, I'm going to start by just saying, unfortunately, the food we eat today is not the same type of food that we ate hundred years ago. Our soils are depleted. And if the nutrients are not in the soil, it's not in our food. So many people are walking around with subclinical micronutrient deficiencies, meaning they're not you know, like deficient in terms of like what we would see with like pellagra or beriberi or um, scurvy with vitamin C. Um, But, you know, they have suboptimal micronutrient statuses in terms of these vitamins and minerals. And so this is where I think, you know, supplementation could be beneficial, but we also have to consider, um, you know, what other uh, comorbid conditions do these people have, and what medications are these people on, and what is their lifestyle like like are they really stressed? Are they using and abusing a lot of alcohol um all these different factors can you know deplete various micronutrients and um, kind of put us out of equilibrium in a way and these micronutrients are important um, because a lot of these micronutrients are used as cofactors that assist in thousands of enzymatic reactions throughout the body. And then Mm. these, these reactions are kind of like the um, you know the the machinery processes that you think about in kind of like a uh, a work factory, right? And so without those cofactors, they're going to work suboptimally, or they're not going to they're just not going to work as well, right? So I even think about for some people that may have um, food intolerances, like do you actually have a true food intolerance where you don't have the necessary enzyme to break that down, or are you subclinically micronutrient deficient in those enzymes that are necessary to break down those Those food byproducts like those, like the lactose sugar, because you're subclinically micronutrient deficient, you don't have the necessary nutrients for that enzyme to work properly, and therefore it's showing up as a food intolerance. Um, And so that's just something to consider. And then also looking at what is the the status of the GI tract too. So a lot of the foods that we consume, when we break it down, uh, you know, those constituents are absorbed in the small intestine. Um, mostly in the upper part of the small intestine, that top one third or even two thirds of the small intestine. And if you have something like celiac, where you're not able to, that brush border has turned into, is is unable to, you know, absorb all those nutrients. Or you have malabsorptive issues because you have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or you have candida overgrowth, or you know, your your GI system is off track. You're not going to be able to absorb nutrients. So you can be eating all the best foods, but if you can't actually break it down, assimilate, absorb, and assimilate all those nutrients, it really doesn't do your body any good. So that's where it's like I think functional medicine comes in, and it's looking at the root cause and looking at how well are you able to you know absorb, assimilate, and detoxify, um, and then you know just thinking at that patient's picture looking at their overall health what symptoms are they dealing with are there environmental exposures that could also be depleting some of these micronutrients? i mean there's so much to say to it and i it's not a one-size-fits-all answer right and i think that's why you know as I think blanket medicine is bad medicine, you know, blanket recommendations from the supplementation, supplementation, I also don't think is is great. I mean, there are a couple supplements that I take and I think are pretty foundational um, because it's, you know, for every person just kind of like in terms of their roles and many physiological processes are important. I think of like magnesium and magnesium's role, and there's so many different types of magnesium. So, you know, what type of magnesium is right for you uh, based on your symptoms and your constellation and your, and your picture? Um, I think about, uh, vitamin D and how integral that is to so many processes throughout the body, and acts more like a pseudo hormone than it does a, a vitamin. Um, I think about um, a lot of your um, your PUFAs and specifically your omega three fatty acids, even your omega six fatty acids that are essential because we cannot synthesize them in the body, and so you have to get those precursors through the diet. Um, and then there's plant sources, and then there's marine sources. Uh, those marine sources being these. Um, preformed longer chain omega-3 fatty acids and they have a a number of roles in our overall health and so those are kind of the place to start i think fundamentally and then also thinking about you know b vitamins and how stressed we live this day and age and how we're going to turn through a lot more of those b vitamins and how um they're necessary um for a lot of neurotransmitter production these these chemical messengers that are used um in a lot of uh neural pathways. And so, you know, those are kind of things that come to mind and come to start. Um, but I'm curious to know, Lucas, like, what are, what are some other supplements that you think are pretty foundational for people?
1: Um, well, like you said, obviously we're all under a lot of stress. So for me, I actually think that, um, it's paramount that most people take something to at least support their liver function. So in my opinion, I personally use artichoke, Sinara, scolimus, Mm -hmm. um, pretty much every day like or 5 days a week. Um I, I need something just something to at least help with you know detoxification and liver health in general because I think um again it's just being assaulted by so many yeah so many means and like no matter how how hard you try to live a you know healthy life you're still going to be bombarded um with these toxins so yeah I guess I guess I'll like I'll I'll draw upon artichoke, but then there's other supplements that I'll bring in and out every now and then, um, just like yourself. Um, but there's one thing I really want to touch on is, um, you know, how it's funny. Some people who experiment with certain supplements, they may get a very adverse reaction, but if you dive a little bit deeper, you realize that it's not the supplement that they're reacting to. It's the actual excipients and, you know, the, the poor quality control, for example, like, um, silicon dioxide and things like that. And then they, they throw the baby out with the bath water and they say, this supplement didn't work for me. It's like, well, maybe the quality of the, of the supplement really affected your response. You know?
0: Yeah. Absolutely, I think it's a really big issue, and there's not so the supplement industry here in the United States is not regulated by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, which is typically what oversees um, you know all the different drugs and approved therapies here in the United States. Um, For so so for supplements, it's kind of the wild west, and anyone can formulate a supplement product, and so it's really like you know, looking at companies that are doing it right and, you know, good manufacturing practices, third-party testing for purity and quality, as long as looking at, you know, could this be contaminated with heavy metals or mycotoxins or pesticides, um, which are so ubiquitous in our environment, unfortunately. And so um, you also think about, you know, other preservative agents and anti-caking agents um, that are also used in these supplements. And so looking at brands that are, you know, if you look at the other ingredients, looking at, you know, the ones that are using the fewest amounts of additional added ingredients, because sometimes I'll see companies like you go to like a, um, I don't know. Do you guys have like a a Costco, like a wholesale place where you can buy a lot of bulk food? Um, you know, like, so, you know, they may be more cheap to get like a multivitamin there, um, or to get your fish oil there. But oftentimes I see that the other ingredients, like there's more other ingredients than there are active ingredients. And, you know, that's not something that I'm trying to ingest. And a lot of times too, you're also seeing like food dyes and other additives that are questionable. And, you know, maybe in these animal studies are, uh, you know, leading to precautionary concerns of how this could be negatively impacting the gut microbiome or leading to hyperactivity and ADHD symptoms. Um, Or, you know, I mean, there's so many different things. Are they, you know, is it essentially a carcinogen? So that's where it's like we need more research on that. But it's also hard to tease that out because, you know, you also have people that are talking about it's like, you know, how much are you getting exposed to? Um, and so, you know, how, how is your body able to respond to that too? And I think it also comes back to how well functioning are those detoxification pathways and are you able to uh, properly um, conjugate to those xenobiotics that are coming into your system and properly clearing it? And so um that's where, you know, I'm a big proponent too of always supporting my detoxification pathways and I am right there with you where I'm always taking something, whether that's tutica or NAC or glutathione or some milk thistle and artichoke. Um, you know, I do a lot of those things as well. So um yeah. You know, really thinking about the quality. And if you're buying off of like Amazon, which I know it's very convenient for a lot of people when you're shopping for supplements, if you're going through that too, you never know what you're getting. And sometimes these could be expired products that have ransified and, um, you know, are not of utmost quality. And so it's always best to go through directly, um, you know, those manufacturing companies, even though it's an extra step. Um, it may be, it may be inconvenient, but even then, like you could get a supplement from Amazon and report that you're not getting benefit, but then if you're actually get it directly from the manufacturer, you were to get the benefit. And so, you know how many companies too actually have the, the therapeutic amounts of a certain herb or, you know, nutraceutical that they're claiming to have. Um, and I think that's also a really big can of worms that, um, you know, it's just the fact that it's unregulated, like you really don't know what you're getting sometimes. So that's why I'm always telling, you know, my audience that it's so important that you're going through these, um, third-party tested, um, certify good manufacturing, good manufacturing practices type of companies, uh, to make sure that you're getting what you believe you're getting.
1: Absolutely, man. Um, and that's obviously, that's why I actually tend to lean towards, you know, um, buying the herb in its, in a tincture form, like as in, you know, through Mediherb and other, um, companies like that. Cause then you're not, not running the risk of, you know, contamination. And I know that they're, they're, um quality control practices are very strict. So um yeah. So I want to sort of segue on to a little bit about um maybe like toxicity and immune health. Obviously immune health is absolutely priority number one for everyone at the moment around the world. It's a hard Um, topic. Yeah. We won't we won't discuss specific treatments against the virus, but let's just talk about in general, like how can somebody maximize their immune system?
0: Yeah, I I mean, I think it comes back and it's something that's been a little um, discouraging to me is that with mainstream media, really nothing has been talked about in terms of how to support or optimize the immune system. And really, it's been focused on how we need to avoid coming into contact with a virus that our immune system would recognize and then elicit a uh, inflammatory response and all these downstream sequelae in terms of symptoms that people are are experiencing from COVID-19. Um so you know thinking about like we talked about earlier how all uh, there's so many different micronutrients that are used in these enzymatic reactions and support in a lot of these built-in pathways and built-in systems that we have to protect us and so um, you know some of those things that come to mind um, in terms of just supporting overall immune health, and this is not specific to COVID nineteen, uh, because we need more research on this, and even some of the research studies that have been done are still preliminary, and we need um, larger uh, cohorts and larger randomized control trials to prove you know cause and effect. Um, and really, like when we can get to these you know meta analyses and systematic reviews, those are going to be higher quality of evidence that we can look at, but. You know, you know, people are talking about you know intravenous vitamin C at high dose, which uh, you know Shanghai was doing um, for a while, and I kind of think was pioneering the way in terms of bringing more evidence to the benefits of intravenous vitamin C for the treatment of COVID nineteen. And so, for vitamin C, vitamin C is an antioxidant. Um, It also is a recycler of a lot of our other endogenous um, antioxidants, like glutathione, which is our master antioxidant, as well as vitamin E, which is also a potent antioxidant. And um, you know we can only, cons- you know, absorb so much vitamin C. There's actually a tolerance to how much we can consume through food as well as we can supplement with. And so you can meet what's called bowel tolerance and you'll just get loose stools. If you try to just supplement with, you know, 3,000 or 4,000 uh, milligrams or three to four grams of uh, vitamin C. And so intravenous bypasses that um, gut barrier. And so it just makes it more um, readily accessible um, and can help to lower that pro-inflammatory response that is, um, you know, this cascade, um, that is, you know, starting from the infection of COVID-19. And so vitamin C has been, you know, you've probably heard from like influenza and cold that most people talk about, you know, increasing your vitamin C use, uh, to help support the immune system in that way. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, it's a well thought out theory, uh, an approach. Um, and like I said, there is some evidence now talking about, you know, how vitamin C could be used in the treatment of COVID-19, but it's still not, you know, being recognized in mainstream media and in the treatments as first line for COVID-19. Um, just because this is such a novel virus. And I also think that there's some, um, other power dynamics at play to say about that. But um, yeah, I mean, that, that was one that just came to mind. And then also vitamin D and just kind of briefly touching about, about that too. Dr. Stephen Lynn, who's down actually in Sydney and he is a uh, functional and biological dentist, uh, did a post on, on social media and it really resonated with me. And he would just literally said that vitamin D is the immune system. And I couldn't agree more with how you know, important vitamin D is in a otherwise healthy immune system, um, and it modulates these different arms of the immune system. And again, is more of a pseudo hormone and acts on um, hundreds, if not um, upwards of a thousand different enzymatic, you know, reactions in the body. And so, you know, if you're so many people, not only in the United States but worldwide, especially kind of above that. Um, that latitude that a lot of people in the United States live in, in Europe and uh, Northern areas um, are not getting enough vitamin D. And the only vitamin D that they're getting um, is during the summer during sun exposure. But a lot of people are slathering on sunscreen that are blocking UVB rays that you need to generate not only a tan, but the synthesis of vitamin D. Um, and so if you're not getting vitamin D from the sun, you typically would need to be supplementing because vitamin D is not very ubiquitous in the diet. And unless you're eating, um, you know, some organ meats, um, maybe some cold water oily fish like salmon um, and mackerel and herring. Um, some mushrooms may, but it's really hard to get sufficient vitamin D levels just from food. And so if you're um, deficient in vitamin D, which a lot of people are, are subclinically deficient, and if not deficient, I actually saw a patient three weeks ago and their vitamin D level was four. And it's even summer here. And that just kind of like blew my mind. I'm like, it's almost zero, right? Wow. So, um, were, they, you know, were they
1: also eating a, a very low fat diet, by any chance?
0: Like, how, how that, it- I, that I did not, I did not ask about diet and and that visit, so I don't know to be honest. But that would be interesting because it's a fat soluble vitamin, so you need. Yeah. Eat- Sufficient fat in the diet in order to utilize it. And you also think about since it is a fat soluble vitamin, like if you carry excess body fat, so you think about the obesity epidemic here in the United States, and I would even argue worldwide, you know, there's a growing number of obese and overweight people. um, Vitamin D can get sequestered into that adipose tissue, so that fat tissue. And so it makes it less bioavailable. So your body can't utilize that vitamin D. So those people may require more vitamin D. But then you also have to think about, you know, how vitamin D is converted. Um, once it is, you know, goes through the dermis of the skin, it actually goes through um, the the liver and the kidneys. And so, if you have underlying liver or kidney pathology, you need to address that and figure that out because some people may be getting plentiful sunshine and they may be even supplementing, um, but it may not be the t- right type of vitamin D that they're supplementing and or their body can't properly convert it into the active form that it can be utilized uh, to help support all those different enzymatic processes in the immune system. So... Um, you know, those are definitely, uh, two areas there. Um, I also think about, I'm not going to go into much detail of them, but I think about selenium and its role. And a lot of those built in antioxidant defense systems that we have, like glutathione and catalase and superoxide dismutase. Uh, you think about the role of zinc and how that's gotten some press and attention, especially around quercetin, uh, -hmm. which is a, um, a phytochemical that is found in, um, things like elderberry and red onion and, um, apples and onions and, um, is a zinc ionophore. So it helps actually draw zinc into intracellularly where zinc can be used as an anti, it helps to inhibit viral replication. And so with a lot of people that were, you know, in the early onset when they're looking at, you know, treating with, uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, um, which is a Z-pack uh, for uh, COVID, um, what hydroxychloroquine is it? It's a zinc ionophore. So it was helping to draw in zinc into those cells to help halt viral replication. And so, um, you know, that has gotten a lot of attention and uh, has been deemed to not be, um, you know, standard of care in terms of treatment um, for COVID. But, you you know, you're thinking about the immune system at large and how it works. And, you know, transitioning a little bit from those micronutrients that I mentioned, I'll also throw in vitamin A. um, I mean, there's a bunch that you can kind of go through. Um, But thinking about the gut microbiome too, and I think about prebiotics and probiotics and how integral our gut health is with our immune health. They have an intimate relationship and and connection um, in terms of your overall immune health. And so um, those prebiotics, so these are fermentable fibers that you found in plant-based foods. um, They are broken down into short-chain fatty acids like butyrate, acetate, and propionate. And those short-chain fatty acids actually communicate with, this, with your GALT-associated lymphoid tissue, this lymphatic tissue that resides in these prior patches um, on, on the other side of the, uh, the gut lining. And that is going to be influenced in terms of how it influences tolerance, in terms of immune tolerance in those T-regulatory cells. Um, so eating a fibrous, rich diet or in fermentable foods like pre um, probiotics, so it could be kefir or um, you know, tempeh or sauerkraut or um, kimchi, which is my all-time favorite. But there's, you know, sourdough, there's a bunch of different options there. Uh, those probiotics play a transient immunomodulatory role by kind of interacting with the microbes that reside in your colon um, and helping to bolster the their response. And so, you know, that has a direct relationship with your immune system. And so I think about the nutrient devoid diets that many of us eat here in the United States, um, that are simple carbohydrates, simple sugars, um, how that will impact our blood sugar and our insulin levels and make us more susceptible to something like diabetes and metabolic syndrome, which we know are, uh, comorbid conditions that are, um, leading to more hospitalizations and severity of, uh, symptoms as well as morbidity in terms of COVID-19. Um, and so that, you know, is is a, is a true epidemic here in the United States, at least, is the metabolic syndrome that we are largely just masking and managing symptoms through pharmaceuticals and not addressing the underlying root cause. And diet and lifestyle, and you know this from, you know, what we do in naturopathy, that's where I think we really shine is with chronic disease and chronic disease management. And how we can incorporate, you know, a lot of those lifestyle interventions to help people better manage their, their disease. And if not reverse those, that disease and those symptoms by putting body back in the state of equilibrium.
1: I love that, man. I really hope that this whole, um, this entire epidemic is, I hope it's, it's going to be a wake up call, you know, for people to actually, you know, pay more attention to, to their lifestyle, their nutrition, their sleep and we, we can talk about sleep as like a, a major factor in
0: that's a huge um, one.
1: Yeah. Stress. yeah. stress immune. Um, so yeah, it's and obviously like the nutrients, things like, um, majority of people eating like a high refined sugar diet, that's going to be stripping out the body of these nutrients and then these nutrients and, you know, deficient, then we're unable to actually build, those immune cells, the T cells, the B cells, um, things like that. So I guess ultimately like for anyone wanting to optimize their immune system, the key takeaways here are ensure you're not deficient in any nutrients, eliminate toxicity. So reducing the burden, like reducing toxicity burden, um, making sure you're getting good sleep um, movement's another one we didn't we didn't even talk about but move like actually moving, getting, getting up first thing in the morning to actually you know go for a walk or get some sort of exercise in that's absolutely critical um, And then ultimately, you know supplements you know they can play a role as well. We can utilize specific herbs. you know there's obvious I'm sure there's general herbs that you use like on a day-to-day basis even through cooking like for example garlic. Yeah. Um, you know, ginger. Oh, is amazing. Things, yeah. Things
0: Rosemary. Like and I think about, yeah, I think, yeah, these have these phytochemicals, these biologically active constituents that can favorably modulate um, the immune system. And so, yeah, you know, using herbs and it, it's, it's kind of like that kitchen medicine piece um, and how the foods you're cooking with can also be medicinal as well. And not always having to do these super physiologic high doses of herbs. Um, and I think that's the important thing too. And I really do hope like you mentioned, this is a wake up call to people that, you know, to really start prioritizing their health, because I said this before, and I really, and it resonated with a lot of people too. It's just like, if you don't have your health, like nothing else really matters. It doesn't matter what drives you, what you're passionate about. Like if you don't have your health, like you don't have your life. And so you can't prioritize those things that you want to do. And so, you know, taking this preventative approach to health, and trying to focus on whole, on adulterated real food, thinking about nourishment, thinking about moving your body, thinking about becoming more resilient to stress and to, you know, you know, factoring in more downtime and to prioritize sleep and to, you know, foster more community. Um, and I think that's the beauty of Instagram and just kind of how that's brought us connected us and just a bunch of other like-minded individuals that really you know are passionate about health and helping wanting to help other people reach their full potential and and you know not become slaves to the system it's become a way too where it's there's a lot of ego in medicine and i realized that and it's you know it's this power dynamic where the doctor knows all and the patient almost feels defeated and, or that there's nothing else that they can do. And I think that there is so much that patients can do. And I really believe in that aspect of knowledge is power and that empowerment aspect that, you know, when you are equipped with the knowledge necessary, um, you can really make a profound impact in your quality of life.
1: Yeah. There's one other point. Um, I want to really touch on is, um, the therapeutic relationship that's completely missing in a, um, well, it's often missing in, in, a, you know, your regular GP, whereas like when people want to work with, you know, you know, a practitioners like yourself and, and myself, you know, it's that therapeutic relationship is equally, if not more effective than the actual intervention, than the actual treatment. Like it's being able to trust your practitioner, being able to be really fully open, And to actually have someone to listen to your story, like enabling, like allowing someone to, you know, narrate their story, how they got sick, you know, people, they want to just feel listened to. Like people just want to feel heard. And that, that in its, like, that is powerful, man. Like, that is one thing that's obviously lacking when you're in a 15 minute consultation with your GP. It's like that is a major, major component. To catalyze the healing journey.
0: I a hundred percent agree. And just holding that space can be so therapeutic for people, especially for people that I feel like have been punted around from provider to provider and just never felt like that they've been heard. And so simply just validating that, you know, it's not just all in your head and like yeah. there's something going on and maybe I don't have the answer, but I'm going to go up to bat for you and I'm going to advocate for you and I'm going to do my best to help. And I think that you know, and and establishing that trusting relationship that can go so far this day and age when I know so many people are frustrated, um, that, you know, that their concerns are not valid.
1: Yeah. Well, um, we're getting to the end of the show now. So I'm probably just going to wrap up by asking you one final question, Tyler. Um, and that is where do you see yourself in five years from now? Oh,
0: that is a great one. Um, where I see myself in five years. I see myself doing work that I absolutely love and impacting millions of people and being able to go to sleep at night, knowing that I'm making a difference uh, in other people's lives and I'm fighting the good fight and that um, just you know, being a part of this movement, just being on the cusp of, of, of change um, and just feeling very motivated and empowered by the work that I put out there, the relationships I fostered and, you know, just the collaborative work we've done to really instill and drive change um, and really creating this movement to change not only the way that we view health, but practice medicine at large.
1: That's amazing, man. That's um a lot of that I resonate with as well, man. so yeah, hats off to you and thank you thank you so much for joining me today. Um, you've clearly demonstrated your wealth of knowledge and um, and there's I know there's a lot more as well that you've got like we could have gone a lot deeper in a lot of topics um, but I'm sure a lot of people would have um, derived a lot of value from today's episode and and at least hopefully can implement some practical tips and and steps that they can take to lead them to better health which is ultimately what we're all about that's that's our mission that's why we're here with we're, we're just trying to you know lead people to better lives and um, give them the tools empowering people to actually make the change themselves not not us literally pushing them but like giving them the toolkit giving them the knowledge giving them the natural therapies that they need to then apply it themselves because ultimately, like we can do, we can do a lot, but at the end of the day, when it comes to behavioral change, it is mostly up to that individual and how badly they want to facilitate progression. So thanks for coming on today, Tyler. Um, just for our listeners, where can they find you, um, your, you know, functional foods, your Instagram, your website, where can they learn? Yeah,
0: I hang out most on Instagram, so you can find me at functional foods. Um, and uh, I'm pretty active on stories and took a little break on posts, but I'm gonna be uh, getting back to that um within the next couple of weeks. And uh, I have a website, TylerGene.com. You can find a bunch of resources there, um, blogs, resources, um, you know, products that I recommend and use and uh more about me too, if you want to learn more about me. And um yeah, those are the biggest places that you'll probably find me, and I'm also on Facebook too. For those that are not on Instagram,
1: <laughs> awesome! So I'll be linking those in the show notes um, for those listening in. So yeah, once again, want to say massive thanks, Tyler. Um, you've been a wealth of knowledge, and I look forward to chatting with you offline. Um, and we'll probably do probably organise another podcast in the future, maybe like a a, um, a three way with so, some other guests as well. We can have like a group. A group chat sometime in the future. So, um, That'd yeah, fun. Thanks for coming on board, Tyler. I'll speak to you soon. All right. Thanks, Lucas. See ya. Thank you everyone for joining into today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology.